few seconds it makes me nervous please right, work uh, i'm just making sure the dog's not in the background okay well, noise. he snores a little bit yeah <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time sometimes my cat would jump onto my, the back of my chair while i'm doing an interview that's happened to me twice but she seems to be asleep okay we're live hi this is william ramsey welcome to william ramsey investigates on today's show i have a very special guest her name is michelle r mcphee and she wrote a superb book which i read through i really devoured this book title of the book is mayhem Unanswered questions about the Sarnayev brothers, the U.S. government, and the Boston Marathon bombing. I highly recommend this book. Right now on Amazon, it has 165-star reviews. There's an audiobook of it as well. And it is illustrated, so you get to see some of the characters and the, the uh, subjects that are, that are studied in this book. And it's also a Steerforth press book. I've done a lot of interviews with really great authors, and uh, I'll probably put some of those in the show notes as well. But Michelle... R. McPhee is a screenwriter and best-selling true crime author. She's a five-time Emmy-nominated television investigative producer in Boston for ABC News and an award-winning columnist, as well as a contributing editor to Newsweek and writer for Boston and L.A. magazines. She wrote five, episode five of Showtime's City on a Hill in season one and continues to consult for season two while writing her first HBO pilot, The Beast, based on her reporting contained in an upcoming book about the MS-13 street gang. Uh, and she was really on site. I mean, it's interesting in the intro to this book, she was having coffee in the real location of where these bombs uh, exploded on April 15th, 2013. And some of her other books are, where are they? She's written many other true crime books. So I highly recommend people go look them up on her Amazon page. I had them listed. I don't know what happened to my, my Amazon list. Here it is. Uh, when Evil Rules, Vengeance and Murder on Cape Cod. Also, A Professor's Rage, The Chilling True Story of Harvard PhD Amy Bishop, her brother's mysterious death and the shooting spree that shocked the nation. Also, A Date with Death, The Secret Life of the Accused Craigslist Killer. Heartless, the true story of Neil Entwistle and the cold-blooded murder of his wife and child, and then also a mob story. So she has written many books, but again, we're going to talk about this book today, an excellent book, Mayhem, Unanswered Questions about the Sarnia Brothers, the U.S. Government, and the Boston Marathon Bombing, published 2020. So Michelle McPhee, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing I'm to the interview. I'm so happy to be here with you, really. And I, and I want to just echo your sentiments about Steer Forth. You know, it's a, it's a small publishing house with dynamic uh, powerhouse editors and staff, you know, for, uh, and they take a lot of risks. I give them a lot of credit because, you know, they're, they're unraveling a lot of different narratives that I think people have become dug into. And we talked about that in the pre-show about the killing of the young gay guy that was supposedly a hate crime. But he was like a drug dealer in Colorado too, right? Yeah, there was some. I mean, look, the, that was that was a a case that really I think mobilized a movement as it should because if it was a hate crime and and I'm sure there were elements of a hate crime in that in that terrible grisly murder, but there was a lot more to the story, and I think that's what Steerforth does very well is yeah, there's a great story here about the Boston Marathon bombers. One is dead, the other is on death row. Case closed, great job by police. And yeah, that's true. But there are still, as the title mentions, a lot of unanswered questions. And I really appreciate the steer forth and its editors are like Chip Fleischer is fantastic. And so I just wanted to echo your respect for steer forth. 
Yeah, and you can go check out all their books that they have on their website. I'll put that in the show notes as well. And there is a lot more in the story. The reason I reached out to you is because I saw something where the Supreme Court affirmed the death sentence of Jokar, I think is how you pronounce his name, Sarnay, of the, the younger brother of Tamerlan. And so I really wanted to come back to the story. And you've really done an excellent job in getting all the facts together because there was much more to this story than what I understood when it happened. But maybe you can talk about being in Boston on the day of the bombing and then how your investigation uh, commenced. Well, for me, one of the reasons I returned to Boston after a decade working at the New York Daily News as a police bureau chief, which means I worked right out of one police plaza, phenomenal time. I love the New York Daily News. I loved that beat. But after 9-11, and I was on the ground, so this is, you know, terrorism has been in the backdrop of my life for decades now. And I was on the ground when that terrible attack, that terrible morning of September 11th. And because I covered police and fire in courts, you know, 343 firefighters died and 23 New York City cops and 37 Port Authority officers and an FBI agent. So these were people, that, some of whom I knew very well, some of whom I considered friends. And to this day, there are unanswered questions about 9-11 that our own government refuses to reveal. If you imagine a world where we have 9-11 victims who are suing to get information and intel and classified records and our own government is thwarting them in these efforts. And that to me is unacceptable. And so when I come back to Boston, I'm on Boylston Street, Patriots Day is an amazing day in Boston. It's a uniquely Boston holiday. It celebrates the birth of our freedom. And you know, it's a great day. The Red Sox always play. The marathon is always run. This is a worldwide event in Boylston Street. And that eerie photo that we're looking at right now, William, it's like, it's, I still get chills from it. You know, the, the abandoned baby stroller. To think about Boylston Street looking like Baghdad still haunts me. You know, imagining, you know, puzzle pieces of amputated limbs on the street. You know, the spot where an eight-year-old boy and two young women died. Like, this was stuff we don't see. You might see this in terribly in Israel or in other parts of the world, but certainly not on Boylston Street in Boston. And having been on the ground on 9-11, this scene was so much more gruesome because we didn't see the bloodletting. You know, it was awful to see people have to make that terrible decision to jump from the high towers, from the higher floor of the towers to their deaths. And obviously it was a terrible loss of life, but there wasn't the, there wasn't the blood and the grisliness that we saw on Boylston Street. So it was a it was a terrible day. And I was and amazing. Many, Sorry to interrupt, but like a lot more people were injured than I had known. I didn't know that like 275 people were injured. Many amputees and pellets and the bombs were designed to make sure that the skin was burned. So they were sophisticated weapons, right? They were very sophisticated weapons, which is one of the reasons why this, I think the unanswered questions are important. The government says they don't believe that the Zanaya brothers built these weapons, which prosecutors described as designed to create maximum harm. And certainly they did. And I truly believe if we weren't in Boston, the death count would be a lot higher. You know, it was amazing the response. We had uh, an emergency room doctor who was a combat veteran. You know, he was a combat medic. He ran the marathon, then he ran 
to Mass General to save the lives of some of the amputees. And in the end, 17 people were left amputees, four of them double amputees. And, you know, the, the testimony, it was absolutely heartbreaking about how the youngest victim, who was Martin Richard, how he died. And his brother, Henry, this year just ran the marathon, which was a very beautiful story in Boston. And he ran, of course, in honor of his brother who lost his life that day and his little sister, Jane, who lost her leg that day. And the testimony was something that really propelled a lot of law enforcement and myself to get mad. You know, here's a little boy who his body is ripped to shreds by the bomb that was dropped by a smirking Jahar Zanayev. So when we want to talk about the death penalty, I think what it, what a lot of people should do, maybe, in order to understand why the jurors felt the way they did, is take a look at the photo of suspect Whitehead, as they call Jahar Zanayev, smirking. He dropped his backpack behind a row of children, including Martin Richard and Jane Richard. He's smirking at a tree. And when his brother detonated the first bomb at 2.49 p.m. Patriots Day 2013, 12 seconds later, Jahar giggled and set off the second bomb that killed Henry. I'm sorry, that killed Martin Richard. And, you know, the parents, the testimony was so horrifying because the dad talked about how he had to make this terrible decision to leave his dying son behind so he could get his daughter, Jane, to safety and save her life. And, you know, another victim who lost his leg that day testified about how he heard Martin's mom, Denise Richards, who had shrapnel embedded in her own face, say, please, Martin, please, Martin, please, Martin, you know, begging him to live. And in a moment of utter humanity, she saw that this man was also injured and she turned and she put her hand on his back and said, are you okay? And when I think about that, like this poor woman, she's injured. Her son is, you know, taking his last breaths and she still turned and had compassion for another man that was from Massachusetts. And I think that those are the stories that I opened the book with. And I know you've read it, William, and I appreciate that. But I don't tell all of the grisly details to horrify people. But I think I do it in a way to remind people that this is important and accountability is crucial. And if we don't demand accountability, then this is going to continue to happen over and over and over again. Right. I totally agree with you. And can you kind of talk about like that day? They the the Sarnayev brothers were known as White Hat and Black Hat, and you kind of start off the book with the bombing and then how the investigation developed because they didn't really know or well, allegedly right certain different agencies may have known more than the local police. Would you agree with that? Or well, let's start with this. I've been a reporter for a long time. You've been an investigator. The JTTF, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and the Counterterrorism Unit had received information about Tamil and Zanaya. If you recall, and this is kind of extraordinary in the current context of world, you know, uh, the, what's happening in the world, the Russians warned us in March 2011 that they had intercepted some pretty alarming text messages between Tamil and Zanaya and members of the jihad who were in the forest, which is terrorist parlance for training camp. So Tamerlan was texting with a young jihadi, a mujahideen named William Plotnikov. He was this Canadian kid whose parents were desperate to make him Western, but he returned to Russia and he joined the jihad. And the parents of this Canadian called the Russians and said, please help us find our son. 
they pick up William Plotnikov, they grab his phone, and they see that he is exchanging text messages with a guy in Cambridge, Massachusetts named Tam Lanzanayev. That information was shared with the legal attache of the FBI in Moscow in March of 2011. And according to the FBI in Boston, the CTU, the counterterrorism unit, opened an investigation and interviewed Tamerlan and his family multiple times. In September, you may recall in the book, there was this bizarre, crazy murder. Three mixed martial arts fighters, like these were strong kids. And they were, you know, dabbling in drug dealing, and they were very close friends with Tamlin Zanaya. Three men found on the 10-year anniversary, and I'll never forget this. Well, my source called and said, Michelle, it looks like an Al-Qaeda training video in here. It's a leafy suburban block in Waltham, Massachusetts. We don't know what the hell happened, but we know that there are three guys here nearly decapitated. Two of the Jewish victims were mutilated sexually, and there were drugs and money left behind in this house. Well, as it turns out, Tamlin Zanayev was identified at that time as one of the prime suspects by the victim's families because one of the three victims, Brendan Mess, was his former roommate and a close friend of Tamlin's. And Tamlin would often describe him as his only American friend. They were seen at a lot of boxing matches and MMA fights, but he didn't show up at the memorial. And that raised some eyebrows and family shared that with investigators, but for some reason, nothing happened. That same month, September of 2011, September 11th, the 10 year anniversary of the grizzly attacks, that same month, the CIA got a letter from the FSB saying the exact same thing, only worse. Now it's not only Tamlin who is corresponding with members of the jihad and his motherland, his crazy mother Zubidat is also starting to exhibit signs of radicalization. And this letter said, we believe that Tamerlan is going to come to Russia and join the jihad. Now, this brings up the question, to go back to your very earlier question about the identification. If you or I interviewed someone multiple times in 2011, and you had an open case on them, wouldn't you recognize the guy? Let's start with that. So. I would think so. Yeah, wouldn't you recognize the guy? Let's add to that, Tamerlan had an arrest record because you know he was dating two women at the same time, one being his widow, Catherine Russell, Katerina Zarnayeva, she lives under now, and another woman. And he was arrested in Cambridge for slapping that woman. She dressed too provocatively on her way to a party. He told her to change, she said no, and he smacked her around. So he has a police record. So William, you also know we have something called FBI facial recognition that costs tens of millions of dollars. So the fact that he had a mugshot and we had a clear picture of Black Hat and we had investigators who talked to Tamlin, well, a lot of police officers did not believe for one second that the FBI didn't recognize this guy that they had an open case on. Then we go to a meeting. And if you listen to my podcast, mayhempod.com, you can get that podcast. Ed Davis, the police commissioner, tells a very compelling story because he's an honest and brave guy. And he said that he was at a command staff meeting there were photos being discussed. They had photos Tuesday night. He said, why aren't we releasing these to my guys? We're going to leave my cops out there blind. Why are we doing that? He asked for the name of the Department of Justice official who, was, who wanted to keep these photos secret. He wrote it down. You know, it turned, I think Ed Davis described himself as the skunk at the lawn party because he was very angry. And he said, someone's going to get hurt. 
Well, we all know that on April 18th, someone did get hurt and his name was Sean Collier. And he was an MIT police officer who was assassinated in cold blood on the campus of MIT. So uh, the, the questions started right then and there. Did the FBI know who these men were, who these bombers were? And they didn't share that information with law enforcement on the ground, which left Sean Collier in a vulnerable position to be executed in cold blood three weeks from his dream job of joining the Somerville Police Department here in Massachusetts. Right. And it's even a larger question as why the two brothers were at MIT as well. Like, what were they doing over there, too? Right. Well, it's interesting, too, because it's still questions I couldn't even answer. You know, there was a, a MIT student who was a fellow Chechen who was supposed to be called to testify in the Jahar Zanayev trial. He vanished. They couldn't find him. The government couldn't find him. The defense couldn't find him. There's the former MIT employee, Daniel Morley. I mean, William, I don't know. You, you, I'm sure you read that chapter. I did. Something. I, I mean, it's, is it not nuts that yes. this guy, Daniel Morley, is still walking around? Yes. Especially, Especially with the unanswered when, questions. Who built the bomb, right? That's like the fundamental question. There's no evidence that these two had the skill to make this kind of anti-personnel bomb, right? There's no evidence that they have the skills, and there's no evidence of a bomb factory except for in one place. And that place had nothing to do with the brothers. 55 days after the Boston Marathon, there was the Topsfield Police Department got a call about an EDP, which NYPD guys know, emotionally disturbed person. So there's an elderly woman climbed out of her bedroom window in her bathrobe. A short time after that, her companion climbed out of the bedroom window. Both of them had been attacked by Daniel Morley. And the mother described very, you know, upset and hysterically about how her son had had a meltdown. He was screaming, I've done something I'm going to have to answer to God for. He attacked her. He attacked her companion. They had to escape out a window. The police arrived. There's a very, very long standoff. This guy was threatening to blow things up. And they finally bundle him into an ambulance and they bring him for a psychiatric evaluation. The mom and this and the companion her boyfriend they give police permission to search his room and what they find in there was shocking let's start with the fact that there was a 12 quart pressure cooker next to a bag of fertilizer hidden in a bag in his closet with a, several sets of rubber gloves there were signatures actual signatures the green circuit boards that we saw on boylson street i saw them with my own eyes when the bomb squad was processing the scene there were very similar devices. There were jars of BBs. And so, of course, you know, cops are raised up. They call on the bomb squad. They evacuate the whole neighborhood. They pull over the ambulance and say, is this a live bond bomb? And he laughs and says, well, yeah, it is. So, of course, now people are panicked. It wasn't a live bomb, but it very well could have been, given the materials that were found in Daniel Morley's bedroom. Right. There were also videos of him making a laser detonator. There was all kinds of stuff. And remember, he worked at MIT in the building where Sean Collier was executed. And one of the things that police recovered in his room, that the, the weapons at the marathon were designed from Fagor pressure cookers. They're made in Europe. They're only sold at Macy's. They're not that, you know, they're not everywhere. And they found a ripped box top to a six quart Fagor pressure cooker, the exact size and brand used in the marathon device. 
they found the box top ripped off and on it was a scribbled recipe for thermite, which is a bomb accelerant. So it's an accelerant. So some cops ask this question to this day, and I can't answer the question definitively, but cops ask the question, we know that the Zanaya brothers that night were planning to go to New York. We know that they had other devices. They had two, another pressure cooker bomb and multiple pipe bombs and what they call the Tupperware bomb with them. Did they go to that campus not to assassinate the cop, but did they go there to get the thermite that, that perhaps the former MIT lab worker was making at his place of business? Right. And they were on the run for four days, right? So there was a massive manhunt. I think you said you wrote the governor shut the city down like there was a stay at home order. So some, somebody was probably helping them hide or something was going on that was very suspicious. There's just all kinds of suspicious stuff before the final shootout where Tamerlan um, was was killed, right? So it's four days of, they could have been doing anything. And they had bombs in their car too, right? They had bombs and pipe bombs. Well, that's another interesting question because, you know, if you recall, the night of April 18th was crazy. The FBI finally releases these photos at a press conference in Copley Square. I was there, you know, we have armed and dangerous, suspect white hat, suspect black hat, still uncertain why they just didn't admit they had an open case against the guy, right? Like, so we don't know, but none of us know this, of course, at the time. Uh, hours later, it within, actually, let's start with the beginning. Within minutes of that press conference, Cambridge police started getting 911 calls. And the 911 calls are, they're suspicious vehicles. Everybody is now in a panic. There's a manhunt. Remember, earlier that day was a complete chaos because the president, Obama, decided to come into town and have an interfaith service. Can you imagine the BPD? They're in the middle of a massive manhunt for two terrorists. Now they have to protect the president and every other dignitary from Massachusetts that arrived. They're all in one place, in one church. So you're looking for the terrorists and you have to protect this event, this interfaith service. I know they meant well, but bad timing, guys. We're right. literally in the middle of a manhunt and we're going to, you know, add the chaos of a presidential visit with the two senators, you know, the secretary of state. You know, you could have wiped out the whole government that day. But so there was a lot right. of chaos. They released the photos after the president leaves. And then the Cambridge police start getting 911 calls. They respond and it's an unmarked vehicle with a ghost plate. Can you please give me a license and registration? They roll down the back window. FBI beat it. Beat it. What are you talking about? So this happened multiple times where the Cambridge police had these encounters with unmarked FBI vehicles who were being completely uncooperative. And at some point during the night, a sergeant actually tr transmitted to over the radio, which is, you know, is is pretty unusual. These mother bleepers are here and someone's going to get hurt. And I, this is the second time someone predicted that there would be someone getting hurt because the FBI was around Cambridge and they weren't telling the cops why. Right. And, and, they, and to me, that's unconscionable. Right. So there's no communication between these agencies and it's really incredible. So the shootout, the final shootout was like 200 bullets. People were going crazy. And all, uh, Joe Zokar almost dies, right? He's found inside a, uh, a sailboat or some type of boat in the back of somebody's house, right? Well, it's interesting because, you know, um, the podcast came out after the book. I became friends with a SWAT team commander named Jim Boglica. 
And Jim Boglica had also been on the Waltham Police Department during that bizarre triple murder I told you about on 9-11-11. So Jim swears, and I have the map, it's, I think you might have seen it in the photo insert you mentioned, that that day there were, it was chaos. The city shut down, there's a stay at home order, you know, there's this wild bomb and bullet battle, you know, the, the Zania brothers were throwing bombs. Um, pressure cooker embedded into the side of a car. People who are watching TV in their house, one of them, literally, they're watching coverage of what's happening outside on their street, and a bullet pierces their television set, flies through the window and, and pierces the TV. So this is really, really crazy. And Sergeant Jeffrey Puglisi, who's also on the podcast, an amazing story. You know, he fires skip shots, which takes a very skilled gunman to be able to pull this off, but he fired under a car, bounced up and hit Tamlin. So Tamlin's and I have the older brother, Black Hat, he shot nine times and he's still alive, believe it or not. And they're about to arrest him and they hear the gunning of an engine and somebody yells, watch out, Sarge. And Puglisi has to drop Tamlin's belt buckle because they have him, they're trying to get him. And next thing you know, they jump out of the way just in time for the younger brother, Jahar, to run over his older brother and drag him. Now, if you can believe this, Tamerlan is still alive. The ambulance driver describes how in the ambulance he was fighting them and growling like a bear, shot nine times, run over, scalped. We've seen the grisly autopsy photos of how badly wounded he was, but he was still fighting in that ambulance until he was pronounced dead at 1 a.m. on April 19th. And what was interesting on his death certificate, and I'll, it's one of those things that bothers me, as it says right on his death certificate, occupation never worked. Because it was, the entire family came into the United States and, and were well taken care of by the U.S. taxpayer. None of them ever had a job. You know, they got a free ride, like Jahar got a free ride to UMass Boston. Everybody was collecting welfare. They had a Section 8 voucher for that house they lived in on Norfolk Street. And I, well, and we that, can go down that And that's another mystery, like, too, right? Because he was driving a Mercedes, right? He was, he was driving, driving a Mercedes. Mer right. So you've thought maybe he was an asset of either the FBI or the CIA for some years. Like he was making money some way. Nobody really knew. He was supporting a wife and a kid, and, or supposedly. Well, remember. Remember, when we got those two letters from the FSB, one to the FBI and one to the CIA, Tamerlan's and I was put on a terror watch list, partly because the Russians were like, we think he's coming to Russia. Well, guess what happened in January 2012? He went to Russia. <laughs> Which, I mean, this raises a huge question for our homeland security, and the, and the answers we're getting are unsatisfactory. How did a guy on two terror watch lists... Now, remember, one of the major recommendations, and this should infuriate everybody, one of their major recommendations in the 9-11 Commission report was do not allow people who successfully receive political asylum on the basis that they are going to be killed if they return to their homelands, travel back to their homelands. With no, pass with no passport, right? With no passport. The right. Tamerlan traveled sense. on a green card. It's crazy. That's so crazy. they never implemented that recommendation. Tamerlan's and I, it goes back to the country that his entire family said, we have to leave Russia because they're going to kill us. We're on a hit list by Putin. They want to kill us. And they went back to the very place that they said they needed to escape from. While Tamerlan is there, 
you know, there's a, there's a bunch of crazy stuff he was doing, like wiretapping his family. Because I don't know about you, William, but when I go visit my family, I wear a wire. <laughs> I know. That's normal. Wear a wire, wiretap the family, keep records on your wire. computer of it. Sure. And then the person he was wiretapping, who just happened to be the leader of a jihadist group, the Union of the Just, which didn't exactly, they sympathized with the jihad and maybe provided financial support. And the crazy mother, her cousin was the leader of the Union of the Just. And what a coincidence. When Tamerlan flew out of Russia, he got locked up. But let me just mention that before Tamerlan flew out of Russia, the day before, Remember the Canadian William Plotnikov he was texting with? Well, there is a massive counterterrorism raid on the compound that Plotnikov and other jihadists were training in. Everyone in the compound dies. A Russian interior ministry officer dies. This is a very long gun battle that you can find video of on YouTube. Oh, wow. And who gets out of town the very next day? Tamerlan Zanayev with a one-way ticket. And he breezes through customs without a passport on two terror watch lists, returning from a hotbed of terrorism, and he looks completely different from the man who left the United States. He comes back with a long beard. Uh, he, soon after, he's starting to wear, you know, typical Muslim garb. There were a lot of warning signs about this guy, but miraculously, he's suddenly on the fast track to citizenship that he's not eligible for because he slapped his girlfriend in the face. Right. And it actually goes deeper than that because his father, who was kind of, uh, he seemed to be like under medical care or taking like uh, psych meds or whatever. His father was brought to the U.S. by his brother. So the uncle of Tamerlan, I forgot his name was. Uh, Ruslan Sarney. Ruslan, right. Who's, who's married, longtime CIA operative, like Grant Fuller was an operations operative. So he wasn't an analyst. He was in the field running operations. So there's a- At bear... one point, he was like in charge of the DNI. The de he was the deputy of national intelligence for oh, Ronald dude. Reagan. This guy, Graham Fuller is very famous because his claim to fame, and this is something he's written about extensively, so I'm not talking out of school, but he truly believed in the mission of arming the Mujahideen to fight the Russians. So he he's been doing this since Osama bin Laden. And what is interesting about Graham Fuller, the father-in-law of Ruslan Sarney, what's interesting about him is that he was the station chief for the CIA in Ankara, Turkey, which is exactly how the entire Zanaya family got political asylum. They went to Ankara, Turkey, and they all got into the country via a, a tourist visa initially from Ankara, Turkey. And if you look at the timeline, the whole family arrives in 22, 2002, except the Tamilin, who stays behind in Ankara, Turkey, with his uncle Ruslan and Graham Fuller for six wow. months. Wow. I didn't know that. I, I missed or oversaw that. Wow. So he was at six months in Ankara. And Fuller is like, yeah, he's, I mean, huge. It's really incredible. So he had I mean, some Graham kind of Fuller is all over them. Even the house, uh, remember, even the house on Norfolk Street that they lived in was owned by a KGB defector who was Graham Fuller's Russian studies professor. Is that a coincidence? Wow, that's crazy. And there was also, I think, uh, Jokar went to school at UMass with another CIA agent who was there. It was... Uh, yeah, Brian Glenn Brian Williams. Glenn Williams, yes. So, yeah. Oh, it's just, uh, and he was actually, supposed to testify, but he never showed up. 
Yeah, but and then they were. I think Fuller went to Rand, so he was research and development uh, type stuff, like real high end intellectual. I didn't know that he had a six month relationship. Well, you know, I'm so, I'm sorry. I just get so excited about this, but you know that Brian Glenn Williams was given a speech in Russia, and according to Russian intelligence reports, Tamerlan attended that speech in Georgia. Wow. And it was put on by a, a, an umbrella of Jamestown, which we all know is, you know. Jamestown Inst Foundation, right? Yeah. Oh, wow. It's really mind-boggling. His, his background was really incredible because Tamerlan was a Golden Gloves winner, right? He was an American citizen, but he had, he was a really skilled heavyweight fighter. I think that's what we need to look at when we look towards motive. Why would he do this? Because on paper, let's... Look at he's a he's an intelligence officer's dream. He provided good intelligence. Let's let's be real. You know, uh, we know that he was a member of a very controversial mosque with a long. It was started by a convicted terrorist, and then there were a slew of convicted terrorists who moved through this mosque, including Lady Al Qaeda, Afia Siddiqui, uh, including, you know, the the spokesperson for ISIS who was taken, Ahmad Abu Sama, who was taken out in a drone strike. So the mosque that Tamerlan was attending, many believe as a mosque crawler, reporting on, you know, because he would create a commotion and then report on who came to him and agreed with some of his radical ideals. Then you look at what happened in, in Russia. Those men, William Plotnikov and his compatriots, they were horrible human beings. These were people that were doing, killing civilians left and right, blowing up police officers. You know, the, they would blow up a train. The, so the people who died in Russia, I don't, I think counterterrorism officials were definitely celebrating that mission. And then he comes back here and he is desperate to become a citizen. We know this because he participated in a photo essay called Will Box the Passport. He wanted to fight for the U.S. in the Olympics, and he probably could have. He was a very skilled boxer, as you mentioned, heavyweight champ, twice of the Golden Gloves. But he couldn't fight for the U.S. because he wasn't a citizen. So I think that he had a lot of motivation to become a citizen. I think he was promised citizenship. And I think when he got back from Russia, he got a letter saying, hey, congratulations. Your oath ceremony is going to be October in 2012. He shows up. Oh, no, no, sorry. We have some paperwork snafus. He went to the USCIS building numerous times thinking he was going to walk out of there a U.S. citizen. And there was some sort of snafu every time. The final time was in January. And we know that in January 2013, just weeks before the bombing, we know that he had a full-on meltdown in that office. He demanded a name change application. He changed his name to Muaz which was the name he was using in Russia, his undercover name. He changed it officially to Muaz, stormed out of there. And we all know what happened on Patriot's Day 2013. Wow, yeah, that's amazing. So he selected that day specifically as kind of like, uh, you know, anti-American thing because it was a super patriotic day in Boston, right? I mean, who knows what's in his mind, but it, it certainly seems like, look, you know, my grandfather used to always say, if you go to a barbershop long enough, you're going to get a haircut. And I think that Tamerlan was was straddling these two worlds. When he arrived in the U.S., he was just like what we would call a Euro trash kid. You know, he hung around on Newbury Street. He dressed flashy. He dated girls. He smoked a lot of weed. And then suddenly he's attending this radical mosque that has known associations with terrorism. Uh, he's wiretapping his family members who are promoting terrorism. He's spending a lot of time with crazy people 
who believe in the jihad, like his mother. So who knows? I think he just, he felt betrayed. I think many people believe and that he could have felt betrayed, that he didn't get a citizenship as promised. He felt like he earned it. And when he left Russia, Doko Umarov, who people might know as the Russian Osama bin Laden, he had like a dredge report, a, a terrorist portal called uh, Capcats. And Capcats had a report about that raid that killed William Plotnikov in Udemish. And the report said that the aggressors were led to this house by an informant. So in Russia, they're talking about an informant. Tamerlan beats feet, in the words of Congressman Bill Keating, and leaves town right after this raid. And so I wonder if he's sitting around knowing that people, his own family knows he's an informant. He's sitting here, he's waiting for his citizenship. And he keeps getting, in his mind, he keeps getting, you know, jerked around and he's not getting what he was promised. And I think he just got increasingly, increasingly angry. Um, but we'll never know this because I think the most important thing, and this is the thing that I remain apoplectic about, is that the FBI refused to cooperate with congressional invest investigations. And that's the big overarching part of this. How is it possible that FBI officials can ignore congressional subpoenas? in classified and unclassified settings. And if you listen to the podcast, you can hear the outrage. When was the last time you had Michael McCall, a Republican, and Bill Keating, a Democrat, agree on anything? These men were furious. They were furious. They say, you know, this information does not belong to the FBI. It belongs to the American people. It got so bad that a bipartisan delegation of federal lawmakers had to go to Russia with Steven Seagal from Hard to Kill, the actor with Steven Seagal had to bring our lawmakers, our lawmakers, to Russia, where they returned saying that the FSB gave them more information than the FBI. That's unacceptable. That's it is unacceptable. It's a really incredible. And what what's your position? Like, there's a lot of rumors around the internet that these that this was kind of like a staged event, or that these now, are actors. It's not. These people were really injured. That is, that is the most up. asinine, yeah. asinine. You know, and you know what's sad about that? It really makes me angry because, look, first of all, I know the victims personally. So it's ridiculous. Right. I, I don't even want to say it it's out loud. It's so right. dumb. Yeah. It okay. is well, so, so, so dumb. It's, it makes me angry. But the reason, the reason that people are not looking at this case more diligently, I think it's because of that nonsense. Interesting. Um, I really it, think that you get lumped in, if you ask real questions, it's immediately like tinfoil hat conspiracy stuff. And this is not a conspiracy. This is, as you can see, every single thing in my book is documented. Right, yeah. Every single thing I say in my podcast, you can go to mayhempod.com and look at the evidence yourself. This is not some, it was some nut, nutty idea. Right, no. I mean, yeah. you have it very diligently researched and footnoted. Even you, I was surprised you had a footnote of you talking to Graham Fuller. All that stuff is in there in the back, so people can go through it. It's mayhempod.com is your podcast, right? Yeah, that's it. Mayhempod.com. Okay. I mean, it's an amazing book. I really enjoyed reading it. I mean, I really, like I said at the intro, I devoured this book. It was fascinating, and it was, I, there was a lot of these elements that I didn't know, and unfortunately... I think some of that internet rumors bled into my mind. So this is much more clear-headed, clear thinking. So I really got a grasp on this. Well, I mean, you're, not, you're not the only one, but I'm just going to say, I'll just put it to bed like this. 
I know these people <laughs> personally. I've become close friends with several of the amputees. And there is nothing fake about the pain and the suffering that they go through. I've seen the x-rays of Mark Fukuril, whose body is still festooned with BBs that seared into his flesh. You know, this it's just the, the pain and the suffering that I was there. I mean, I literally saw it with my own eyes. So when people make those allegations, I become incensed because it's, well, it's just stupid, frankly, it really is. And, and the stupidity of it is just diminishing the real questions that need to be answered by the FBI. Right. I mean, that's right. Good point there. I think that's a great way to end it. And where's the best place for people to get the book? I know there's a book, Kindle version and audio book. So people have choices, right? Yeah, they have choices. You can get it anywhere at Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Um, you know, I'm, and I'm always happy to answer questions if people dig through the evidence and say, hey, well, what about this? You know, you can call me out. Uh, a friend of mine who's a retired CIA officer, John Woodward, he teaches at the Pardee School, which is the intelligence school for, largely for military officers. And he assigns this book. And mm -hmm. one of the things that he has his students do is, is do a critique. And so I'm always happy to answer the unanswered questions. And uh, those students have been great because they've they've dug into things that I didn't think of. Oh, interesting. And your website is your full name, right? Michelle McPhee, M-I-C-H-E-L-E-M-C-P-H-E-E.com. Is that the best place for people to reach out to you or is it Twitter? Twitter is probably the best. At Michelle with one L, M-I-C-H-E-L-E, McPhee, M-C-P-H-E-E. And I am responsive. I really try to get back to people. Everybody has a right to, to ask the questions that they still linger in their minds. There's a lot of open questions. I mean, there there's a lot of, I mean, it, I doubt that they did it alone. Do you, do you pretty much believe that they intentionally did that? Like they weren't running some operation or patsies or anything like that, that they meant to no, make... I, I didn't. I absolutely positively believe that those two brothers, I mean, look, at as much as uh, Jahar has been painted as this poor little victim, the hapless, you know, and intimidated by his older brother. We all saw the Rolling Stone magazine that heroicized him. And we've seen the stories that lionized him. No, this is a heartless punk, a heartless punk who smirked. The same way he smirked behind that tree when he dropped the bombs behind children is the same way he smirked through the trial. Think about this. When he got the COVID cash, you know, Jahars and I have got a COVID relief check on death row at ADX Supermax. Wow. So he has gotten so much money. For some reason, his own defense attorneys are sending him money. I can't get the answer to that question. But he's gotten so much money from his little fangirls. So the government is trying to seize his money and you learn, you know, interesting things. He's suing us. So think about how much money we're spending on this case. His trials are so expensive. The cost is under seal by the court. Wow. The district court has sealed the cost of both of his trials. The cost of his ongoing appeal is sealed, wow. sealed. And he, the cost of him suing us because the prison took away his white baseball cap because he was being disrespectful and, and, the prison officials believed by wearing a cap exactly like the one he wore when he attacked Boston on Patriots Day. So he sued. He sued because he's sad he can't mail his hobby crafts to his lawyers, which to me is a conflict of interest. You should, the lawyer should not be getting memorabilia from a murderer. 
from a mass murderer, right, or a mass injurer. I mean, they, they were on a killing spree. They killed probably more people should have died. It really was. I mean, it's terrible that three people lost their lives, but it really was miraculous that all, all those people's lives were saved. It was a team effort, so it's really incredible. Um, that's an incredible part of the story. Uh, it's a great book. I highly recommend people go get this book. Title of the book, again, is Mayhem, Unanswered Questions About the Sarnayev Brothers, the U.S. Government, and the Boston Marathon Bombing. And the author is Michelle McPhee. So, Michelle, thank you so much for your time. William, thank you so much. This has been absolutely lovely. And I love, Great. you know, William Ramsey investigates. You guys, you really dig in and I like it. I try to. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thanks so much. Stay there. Stay there. All right. Cool. So I'll put all that stuff in the